Hey everybody, it is episode 56 of the Running Rogue podcast, this time coming at you from 2018. Happy New Year, everybody. We hope you enjoyed our first episode, episode 55 of the New Year, where we talked about running resolutions or starting a running program. Today we're going to the other end of the spectrum. We're talking about those that are experienced and hopefully getting folks ready for a couple of local, local-ish Texas races coming up. So for those that are listening, we're going to be talking about the Houston Marathon and Half Marathon, the 3M Half Marathon, and then the Austin Half Marathon and Marathon to give you race plans for those. And then with with Austin also, particularly talk about the new course. For those that aren't in Texas that don't know anything about the Houston Marathon, Austin Marathon, or 3M Marathon, Half Marathons, then I still want to make the case that this is an important episode to listen to. We're going to have some interesting intro topics that we'll cover in a second. But also, this is going to give you some thoughts on how you take our principles that we've talked about in race planning and perhaps apply it to any race. We had somebody email us after the Dallas half marathon and marathon, and he said, Hey, you know, you guys didn't talk about Dallas, but I used some of your tips to craft a race plan for myself for the Dallas half. He ended up with a PR that day because he used a lot of the principles. So we're going to be talking about three very different types of courses. Houston, which is really flat. 3M, which is a net downhill race. And then Austin, which is hilly as crap. And (laughs) basically going to talk about those race plans for each one of them in turn. And hopefully you can take the principles that we use for these races. And even if you're not doing them, apply to races that might be coming up for you. So that's the idea. So we think it's still worthwhile to listen to, even if you're not doing one of those three races. All right, before we get to all of that, we've got some intro topics to cover. Really, these are all these all come from athlete interviews. The first, which came from a Jenny Simpson interview, she was actually interviewed by kids, which was (laughs) kind of funny. So there's and I'll I'll uh, link to all of these in our show notes. There's really some funny responses in here, but the the one that was The one that struck out most to me, Steve, and I want to get your input on it, is she was asked about what's coming up in 2018, and she said, I'll be doing some miles, as we know. She's a 1,500 miler, but she talked about the 5K, that she'll be doing more 5Ks this year as maybe a sign that she's thinking about moving up as she approaches the next Olympic year in 2020. So what do you think? Sorry, Jenny at the 5K. I mean, she... She started as a steeplechaser, and she also ran, you know, that year that she broke four, she broke 15, so um, this is not that far out of her wheelhouse, her her coach in college and her now coach at, in the pros um, is a master at the 5K, 10K, and the steeple, and so this just makes sense to me. Another thing that a lot of people may not know about Jenny, if you watch her racing style, Chris, she's a winded up pull it out over the last 150 without a lot of shifting changes. And that is perfectly designed for what you see in 5Ks too. Jenny's always struck me as somebody who didn't have that like quick change gear thing. She can, but she's incredibly good at winding up. Um, And I think that she's going to be, if she moves up to the 5,000, she's going to be extremely dangerous for everybody. And this is the year to do it. You know what I mean? It's it's in between world championship years. She might even do it at the U.S. championships or try a double. Wouldn't that be cool, Chris, to see a double? That would be awesome. The 15-5 double? It's tough to do, but our, but this year is a year where you could focus early 
try to get it done well at the U.S. Championships, take a little bit of downtime, and then still get back for the mid, you know, the late, the mid to late summer race schedule that goes on in Europe. So um, if she's making that kind of a comment, then there's been a lot of thought process going in this, even if there were kids that were doing the interviews. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, and it was almost like she mentioned it offhand, kind of like she didn't want anybody to know yet, really. Yeah, But she couldn't lie to the kids. Yep. (laughs) So I think we got a little preview of maybe something that we weren't supposed to see yet. I think it would be so cool. But it's going to be interesting. I mean... For those that don't know, Jenny has three world champion, world level championship medals. She's won gold at the world champs, as well as silver, and then she has a an Olympic bronze. And so she's consistently getting it done. Sorry, and sorry, two world championship silvers yes. and an Olympic bronze. Consistently getting it done. More U.S. championships at the 15 than I can count comes from that steeplechase background. So the strength is there. She's been coached by Wetmore. For a long time, strength-based programming. My question is, if we can get Robery versus Simpson versus Kate Grace at the 5K, who wins that race? I mean, in my opinion, when Jenny's on, Robery can't run with her. Robery's more of a shifty go girl. I think she's more of a 5K-er. I mean, more of, Sharon is more of a 1,500-meter runner than a 5K runner. I think I just don't know how any of them can beat Jenny, period, in my opinion. I mean, they'd have to have a great day. Kate has some skill sets, and she's done some aerobic development work that could help her get there, and she's now in a program that's going to be doing epic loads of that. Um, you know, there's another name you didn't mention there who I'm bullish on, and that's uh, that's she's now changed training groups too, uh, Maria Hall. But I can't wait to see what, changes happen with her as she moves into a far more aerobically developed program like she was in in college um it's going to be that 5k we could be approaching sort of the 1500 steeple range in terms of american um being americans being significantly impactful and we've been needing that we're not quite there in the 5k yet and if jenny came you know as soon as you know, when the when the ocean gets higher, all the boats rise, and I think that this is this is something that could happen. It could be really yeah. good for the well, United States. And with Huddle moving on to the roads, we need an heir apparent. So Absolutely, we need some spice. Well, in that, and don't think don't forget about Shelby Houlihan. I mean, that girl probably oh, sure. has most the best skill set, honestly, of a true five k runner. Um, she's she's more like Jenny in terms of how she can run if she can just get everything all put together all at the same time. And now. Like now, there's like three or four of those girls are training together. Yeah, no, it's exciting, and I think it's exciting for this year because you don't have a global championship, no world champs, no Olympics, but this is a year that a lot of athletes mix it up in their distance to try to work on yep. weaknesses, perhaps, and do other things. So if we see Jenny move up and do a bunch of five Ks, it'll be fun to see what head-to-head matchups we get. So look for that. In but I would, Chris. But I'm excited. But I, I'm not counting against her in any. I- I wouldn't, period. Anyways. But I would love to see her run the steeple. Can you imagine if she went back to the steeple? Think about the, we would be, I mean, <laughs> I didn't ever want her to leave the steeple. Yeah, yeah. I thought she went to the 15 just to get her steeple skills better. Not going to happen, Steve. I not know it's gonna not going to happen, but oh man, it would be so sweet to see. <laughs> Emma versus Jenny in the steeple. And don't, would and, be, and, would be, and uh, you know, we've been. We, I don't know. It, it would be it would be Courtney, very very Courtney, interesting. Yeah, but Courtney, that's not going to happen. Okay, I'll leave that alone. But I just opened up another follow-up, so we'll see what happens with that. So that's something I'm excited about in 2018. 
Something else I'm excited about in 2018, which we've already talked about at the end of last year, is the London Marathon field, which is stacked with Kipchoge leading the way and Mo Farah on the UK side trying to get the British record. Farah came out, and they, they seem to be good about kind of just, you know, giving us little bits from Kipchoge. Yes. Here yes. and there to keep They're not the giving hype. the one big, uh, yeah, the one big thing. And Yoda, and Yoda keeps giving these <laughs> yeah. amazing non sequiturs. So that we had us a back. quote this week about London and world record versus racing. What did he say? He basically said, ultimately, I'm not really all that interested in the marathon. I'm not all interested in getting the world record. I want to race. Um, I get you the direct quote. Give me just a second. I'll pull it up here. But the quote basically stated. Um, Oh, wait, it changed, so it's not the quote of the day on Let's Run, so I can't just quick, just immediately go there. Basically, he just said, if it comes down to it, I'm going to focus on winning the race because that's the most important piece of the puzzle, which basically just says to everybody else, well, the one chance you had to beat Kipchoge is now out the window where he would go for something and then fall apart and everybody could go pick him off. I got the quote here. The, okay, the read The course it. in London is challenging. And with, Run Boston. And with, and with <laughs> all the top athletes running in London, it's important to focus on winning and see if the record will fall within the stride. But to go out purely fighting to break the record is not ideal. No, it's that would I it and that was the that to me that just signals that everyone else is running for second place. It's on. Unless, <laughs> of course, on. Kipchoge decides to let it sit around for too long because then as as the great Jonesy told us, yeah, if these guys decide to fuck around and play tiddlywinks, <laughs> it could get it could get ugly. But here's the thing, Steve. As much as he's Yoda he is also very calculated in these things. Like I don't think he says a word that's not intentional. Oh no, no, or I agree. So he wants the world record as much as anybody. He knows that's the last piece of his resume on the greatest of all time, as the greatest of all time marathoner. So he wants that. He knows it's about that for him. But he he throws this to those <laughs> guys to be like, look, guys, don't forget, throwing I'm still shade. Out, I'm still <laughs> out there to win this thing. So he's not going to let it sit around. There's no way that happens. He's going to he's going to ask for a 202 pace and then challenge those guys to go with him and but remind them here with this kind of quote that hey, don't don't you worry. Just like in Berlin when the young buck came after me, I won there and I will win again if somebody threatens. Yeah. I mean no matter what the clock says. So I think this is just all part of Kipchoge psyching I, out. Yoda his is definitely playing his game he's for sure. He's using the force. Yes, he's strongly. using the force. And by the way, Let's Run recently posted that they they had Joff, uh, Joffrey Karui as the world number one in the marathon. And I get that if you just run it on points, that's probably the case. But come on, people. It's crazy. That's just that. Come on, just don't. I think their statement was Kipchoge is the world best marathoner, but Karui is world number one. Shut the hell up. Like, they're, <laughs> I'm sorry. The guy ran two hours, came back, won a hard fought Berlin marathon. What, what else? What else is there? I mean, what else can you ask this guy to do? He's just, I, I just don't, I, I get, I do think that that's the one race that I would most want to see, Chris, is Karui versus Kipchoge. I'm more interested in that matchup than a Farah or any of these other guys going up against Kipchoge because Karui is one guy who yeah. is, well, he will figure out how I to want win. It, I want it at a non-paced race. Yes, exactly. Give, give it to me at New York or Boston. Yes. Or Chicago. Or Chicago, even. yep. And, yeah, Kipchoge versus Karui, that'll be interesting. Would be more interesting than Bekele or Farah or any of the other guys. Yeah. 
Anyway, I digressed again. But Sorry, it's digress. a, I'm on a digression today. I'm on digression day today. Kipchoge <laughs> will no doubt give us more gems to come, but that's something else we're looking forward to in 2018, the London Marathon. And will the world record fall and will Farah challenge the great one? I think probably not. But next, we got an interview with Lauren Fleshman, Sally Burgesson from Wazelle interviewed Lauren. And the interview was based on basically some goal-setting tips that are in Lauren Fleshman's Believe Training Journal, which you can buy on Amazon. On page 20 in that book, there's a page on goal-setting that's basically titled Supercharge Your Chance of Success. And so Sally kind of said, hey, Lauren, I want to dig into some of these things on this page about goal-setting. And got Lauren to kind of go back and forth. So I just wanted to highlight a few of these things and then get your reaction, Steve. The, f- the point number one on that page says, set process goals, not out- outcome goals. And Lauren has a quote in her response to Sally's question about that, which basically says this. Athletes that didn't embrace this idea of setting process goals tended to underperform. Overly attached to their outcome outcome goal, they were likely to prematurely judge their performance to project failure to get in a negative headspace and wither if too many strong athletes were still in the hunt for their coveted place. They would often fall apart and finish far worse than their capacity. They were likely to finish thinking, damn, I got so attached to that one goal that I failed at the simple task of doing my best with what I had on the day. Not only is that a crappy feeling, but it's a squandered opportunity. Thoughts on that? You know, I'm, I'm, there's two, I'm, I, uh, two sides of the truth on this one, in my opinion. Um, I get the point and I understand that, uh, from an analytical and from a design standpoint, if I had an athlete that failed to reach their command performance, Chris, then I would say, yeah, maybe we should have focused on process, but every single time I'm going to lead with outcome goals, because I think they're the real motivators. They're the things that keep people's feet pointing straight ahead that the reason like people put their sh- their pant their running shorts on their sh- socks and shoes on and get out the door to go get it not because they love the process most runners don't love to suffer that way they might love to run but i think it's a little bit i think you've got to have both but i don't know that i would ever put process directly ahead of outcome um but then again it, it it's it's a, it's two sides to the truth you know yeah. and I think both are important, personally, and I think Lauren is mixing up things a little bit here with her example. I mean, I, I think the example is a good one, and it makes sense in the context of what she's talking about. But you can also combat this idea of, I mean, basically, she's talking about don't quit, no matter what. Right, which I... Which is which completely I, different than potentially than whether you're focused on process or outcome goals. Like, those can be completely different things. You might be focused on outcome goals and still not quit because you've conditioned yourself through some of the mental training things we talked about to not quit, to always give everything you have, regardless of whether the goal slipped away already or not. So I think they might be kind of two distinct issues to address, but overall the point that both are important, I think is still valid. And I agree with you. I wouldn't necessarily rank one above the other. I think you have to have both to get it done. I do think too, that, that her analogy, her example was one about a super competitive athlete. Um, where an athlete's an outcome goal can be time-based. And, and most of the athletes that you and I work with, Chris, and I think most of the people that listen to this podcast consistently, their outcome goal is 
is time based, um, but they're engaged in the process enough that they realize if they miss that, it won't be the only thing. But I do worry that when you put process in front of outcome, that it's antithetical to the American way of thinking about things or the Western way of thinking about things. It sort of puts the cart before the horse. I've always found that most of my athletes, if I gave them outcome-based goals to start with or they chose outcome-based goals to start with, they eventually came back around to the process-based goals and then they were able to lift to the next level with the next outcome-based goal. But it was very hard to get people motivated out the front door, whether you're talking about a couch to 5K person all the way up to an initial first-time or second or third-time marathoner. Process is a confusing thing and um, too nebulous and too difficult to get people to really believe until they are in at 100%. So maybe her example is meant for a more competitive in the zone all the time athlete because I could see an elite athlete being needing more process than outcome but I don't I'm not sure that our to our listeners that would be exactly appropriate well in in that case you also had somebody that was focused on place correct which is is different than time because you have a lot of variables including how your competitors are doing that affect that but the next one I wanted to mention again on this page in her believe training journal and I'll link this interview so you guys have it The page says, embrace the power of negative thoughts. Research shows that people who anticipate obstacles and proactively think of ways around them are more likely to to achieve a goal than those who skip this step. Sally follows up with the question, how does one know when thinking about obstacles has gone too far and might be contributing to anxiety? Lauren responds to that and she says, as for the last question about how to prevent obstacle identification from becoming too anxiety-producing, they're only anxiety producing if you if you're identifying too many, dwelling on them, or if your goal is so aggressive and specific that literally everything has to go perfectly for it to happen. An appropriate goal stretches you but still assumes some shit will go down in pursuit of it. You've got to leave room for it. Obstacles are coming along for the ride whether you want them to or, or not. Identify the most likely, make a quick plan for what you'll do if they happen and then move on. It's genius. We ask, I ask my athlete, I just asked, I'm talking to some of my athletes just this week about Houston-based goals, and every single one of them I said, prepare for shit to go wrong, as she said, or I like to say, become a problem-solving motherfucker, because if you don't get into that mindset, then all kinds of problems can happen. Um, Chris, you're one of the athletes I'm coaching is, he, he, Jay, he sat down and talked to me about his workout, how he was going to run the race, and he had specific time goals, he had splits and all these other things, and then he says, but I'm going to run with Chris. <laughs> And you know, Chris, you're at a you're at a two forty five and we're gonna and we're gonna we're gonna run our asses off to get that, right? We right. know that for sure. Right. Jay could be in two forty shape. I don't really know exactly where he is. But I'm so worried now that he's so because he showed me this whole thing and he's I'm gonna, but I'm gonna follow Chris. It's like those two different different things. So I just said yeah. to him, What happens if you don't run into Chris? What if you don't see Chris at the starting line? Now what are you gonna do? He's like, Oh <laughs> so we're gonna go to your time goals that you already have. Yeah, but no, yeah, buts. Like you know, you know, this is crucial. Get your plan. Know what your main, what you're kind of trying to do. But then, but I just then I just realized I, I'm gonna I'm in all kinds of problems. I could be in all kinds of trouble with him. So I just really need to focus on process. I need to really focus on becoming a 
problem-solving motherfucker because there are obviously problems going to show up in this race for him. And he's fit enough to do everything that he wants to do, but it made me a little bit nervous about that. And it made me realize, gosh, I need to always, for every athlete, talk about this problem-solving stuff. And I think that she's dead on with that, that yes, you don't want to have too many because I have had circumstances where I've asked somebody to take out two or three different problems that could have come up and then have them walk through them and, and answer in the affirmative of how they will overcome it. Um, but I would never ask somebody to do that five of those or seven of those because now you're just looking under every rock for something that's going to trip you up, you know? Yeah. So I think that's great. I love that. I love that. Well, and, and it's about it's about the uh, the skill set to work through the problems, not the specific problems. Correct. Right? It's about the ability to roll with the punches, developing your capacity in that and not necessarily solving every little thing that could go wrong. And so that's what she's talking about yes. and what you're talking about. Yes, exactly. Okay, one more thing here and then we'll go to our main topic. At the end of this interview, Sally uh, talks about this point on Lauren's goal setting page which says, make the time, carve out time in your day to work on your goal. By scheduling it, you'll be less likely to forget about it. She then asks the question, what's a way we can talk about training and running that it elevates it beyond the self. Lauren response is, running is a story that lives within the beautiful storm of a life, and each run is a chance to spend quality time with its heroine. Who wouldn't want to do that? So a lot of lofty words there. Maybe some people will get, you know, lost in the woo-woo. It's a little meta. <laughs> the point get, would get might get lost in the woo-woo of that. But I think if you sit and reflect on what she's saying there, it's really important that one you have to spend time if you're going to accomplish your goals you have to spend time thinking about them planning them evaluating your performance against them processing whether or not you're hitting the process goals that go with your outcome goal and that's something that should probably be done on a weekly basis if not daily for some people but you know but then Beyond that, you know, basically what she's saying is, in her kind of lofty words, is that it's time well spent. Most people sit there and think, if I do that, that's selfish, or I don't have time for, right? We come up with all these reasons why we're not going to sit down and actually work this stuff. But what Lauren's saying is that it's it's basically time well spent. And she's talking about it on a really high level, but... But it doesn't have to be that. <laughs> it's just, it's time well spent. So spend the time. Yeah, and I love to say a warrior brings all their weapons when they go into battle. And when I say that, people think, oh, I need to bring this pair of shoes or bring this or whatever. No, no, no. It, it's what Lauren's talking about. You need, your mind is one of the most important weapons that you're going to use in your achievement of your goals. And you need to bring them every single time you need to bring that to your training. You need to bring that to your reflection. You need to bring that. And there's a lot of different ways you can bring that mental training into the game of your day-to-day -day athletic endeavor, the, your day-to-day -day running. It doesn't have to just be sitting down and writing down mental training. It can be like we talked about, Chris, getting, getting something that you want to work through over a two- to three-run process, and you work through that piece over, by over, over and over and over again to try to get the result that you're looking for. So... Yeah, I mean, it is. She did couch it in some pretty metaphysical terminology, but the point is, you got to use it, 
if you want, you gotta you gotta work it if you're gonna use it. You gotta plan for it. You gotta train it. You gotta work with it, and that's the only way you're gonna do it. You have to have all your weapons if you're gonna go into battle like that. So there you go. Lauren Flesh is one of my favorite athletes in terms of relating to runners. We will definitely share that interview. There's other points in there that I didn't cover on goal setting that I think are appropriate for the start of a new year. So check that out. I will link it in the show notes. All right, let's talk race planning, Steve. We've got three big races in Texas coming up. Houston Half Marathon and Marathon this coming weekend. 3M the weekend after that, and then Austin in mid-February. Big races for lots of people in our groups, lots of people all over Texas. So, And as I said, for those that aren't kind of connected to these races or might not be doing them, I think these will give us give you three very different profiles that might fit your upcoming race. So I think there's things to glean for everybody. I'm also doing Houston myself, as Steve yes. just alluded to. So <laughs> I've got the marathon. We'll talk a little bit about how this plan we talk about for Houston translates to my race so you can get some of the practical application for an athlete as well. So, Houston. Now, this race, by the way, for those that don't live in Texas, is one of the best-run marathons logistically of any race, I think, in the country. I think I would put it up next to any of the big ones in terms of the logistics, the course, the course support. Not as big, certainly, as Chicago and New York and Boston and those, but it's equally well run, really well supported, and it's a be- actually a beautiful course. It's a world-class marathon. Yeah, and it's fast and flat. Yes. So if you want to come and run fast and flat, highly recommend checking out Houston as an option for those that might not be from Texas. But world-class event, half marathon and full marathon, super flat. So there's not a lot to, not a lot of like undulation we have to talk about here. And I, and I would compare this to Chicago in a lot of ways. We've talked about Chicago on this, on this podcast. It's very similar in terms of course profile. Maybe slightly more undulation than Chicago with a few underpasses and overpasses, but not enough to really worry about. Actually, it's a benefit, honestly. Yeah, because it helps mix it up mm-hmm. a little bit for your legs. And just like in Chicago, you've got a lot of tall buildings initially, so your GPS watch is probably going to be worthless for the first mile at least. And you don't go through a tunnel, but you've got you know 100-story buildings you're running through, so you're not going to get a lot of feedback from your watch in that opening mile. And just like Chicago, lots of people got to get to the corrals early, all those things. So I think you know, if you've heard us talk about Chicago, you can apply a lot of those principles here. But let's talk about the half first. Never specifically talked about the Houston half. 13.1 on a flat course, Steve. A few underpasses, as we mentioned, primarily in the half at the end and the final couple of miles as you go back down Allen Parkway into downtown. But other than that, pretty much pancake flat. What do you recommend for this race? Um, I... I this is, uh, you know, the half marathon is the most forgiving race there is out there, in my opinion. Um, and so in the, on this course, I've coached a number of different athletes that were running the U.S. championship half on this course. So I've got some good experience um, working with athletes. And I think the first year that I coached folks, I tried to get them to do a little bit more of a kind of a negative split plan, roll with it as they went along. Um, and, you know, they let the pack go in the first you know, 
two to three miles, and they were never going to regain it. They maybe picked off some people later on. They felt pretty good, but they ran in no man's land. So the big thing I would say is if you need – is the first thing I would say is you can go out fast on this course. I mean, you that doesn't mean that we're asking you to run 20, 30 seconds per mile faster than what you want to run for your goal time for it per mile. But you can run 10 seconds to 15 seconds too fast early on, especially if you're in a pack, um, and still regain your legs because it's going to be – it's a gentle, pretty easy run throughout most of it. The biggest hills come at the end, and they're not very big, really. Um, and so I would suggest to folks not to be – if they're willing to – I would ask them to get out maybe that first 5K and get themselves – a little bit faster than their goal time and then settle in and try to find a really good rhythm from, you know, basically the 5K point or the three-mile point all the way up until about the 10-mile point. So that's about a seven-mile section of running and really try to rhythm run, run with a group, engage in whatever opportunities they have with the people running around them, and then there's a real good chance to accelerate and close out the race. Um, One thing the half marathoners need to consider, though, is that Right around that, um, you know, right around, what is it, like the seven-mile marker or so, seven-and-a-half-mile marker, the courses shift and they change. So if you're running with a group and you're running in a rhythm that way, realize that you're, some of your people, that your racing partners that you might be counting on might be turning right or turning left, might be turning right to continue out onto the rest of the course for the full marathon because it goes for the first seven miles together. But um, I think, Chris, this is a really forgiving, a great course um, we're going to talk about the, the 3M half, which, where it's a much faster course, but I always recommend people go out slower in that race. And this one is one of the very few half marathons where I say, hey, if, if you really want to get a fast time, get out those first three to five, three miles and see how the race progresses and see, you might have a great one come to you. And if you don't, you can always backpedal back up, get onto even splits, and then try to finish the race out the best you can. But you maybe can slip 45 seconds to a minute faster than what you were hoping to run just by getting out in that first bit and then adjusting. So you're saying one through three, maybe get out slightly fast by three, settle into your target pace, hold that till 10 and then close it down from there. Correct. Like I said, you've got a couple of undulations in underpasses in the final stretch. But they Yeah, I mean if you look at the elevation, point, they shouldn't slow you down. If you look at the elevation, they don't have the elevation for the half, but they have the elevation for the full. And that finishes on the same part of that the full does. The biggest undulations and and changes in the entire course happen, you know, from 20 from basically the last 5 miles. So, um and even that, when you look at it, is a 50-meter climb over the course of about a mile, which for folks that live in Austin um, or live in places yeah, that have some hills, it is, n- it is nothing. So you've got a few little ones between 11 and 12. Right. Uh, you know, in addition to some slight uphill to that point, but nothing that you should worry about. But so from five, so the last 5K, bring it home strong. Go. Go. Yes. One thing I'll point out, which applies to both the full and the half is that you have about, it's not quite a mile. It's like three quarters of a mile to run through downtown at the end. Yes. Where you can essentially see the finish in front of you. You can't necessarily see the finish line because it bends off a little bit, Mm -hmm. but you can pretty much see the crowds, the convention center, everything in front of you for almost three quarters of a mile. And it's a little bit deceiving mentally 
So one thing I always recommend both marathoners and half marathoners is try to give yourself, don't worry about, once you get into downtown, don't worry about the finish line. Give yourself interim checkpoints. Look for street lights, look for street signs, something on the side of the road or somebody in front of you that you can focus on to go after. Go fishing, as I like to say. Focus on the things right in front of you. Get to that point and then go to the next. Because if you try to focus on that whole stretch, it's going to seem like forever and you might kind of get mind fucked a little bit because I remember the first time I did Houston I was looking for that finish line and it felt like it was never going to come um, so give yourself interim checkpoints in that finishing straight especially now I want to point out too that your plan that you gave is a very aggressive one it is and for those that are trying to find that edge and get that edge get that PR by 30 seconds a minute I think that's the way to go but if you're somebody who maybe has a little more flexibility or is just trying to have a good race and finish strong, you know, I think another option would be to go slightly more conservative in the first 5K. Start 20 seconds slow the first mile, work down to your target pace over that first 5K, then hold for till 10, as we said, and then close it out. So there's the opportunity for those that have a little more cushion or that want to ensure they have a strong finish or maybe have a little bit more buffer to get that PR where you can go that route as well just as another alternative but if you're gonna go for the pr i think you want to get on the edge and and stay there and this is one of the few race courses out there that will let you back pedal on effort without having to worry about some other course related up or down that's going to get thrown at you that you're going to have to negotiate or deal with um and so uh if somebody's fit and ready to go for this half i suggest getting out that first 5k and and then, and then adjusting as you go along. And one key note about what adjusting means, it may mean that you slow off 10 to 15 seconds and, then, and after that point because you just extended yourself a little bit too much, but you've already made up a good amount of ground and you'll be able to find your good rhythm and you probably will have accelerated 30 seconds over that first three miles that you'll never have to give back if you're tough and you can stay focused and drive through to the finish. Um, but yeah, Chris, your other suggestion, which is what I would call a very sound, basic half marathon plan for nearly everybody is that idea of getting out in the first 10 to 15, 20 seconds slow, the first three miles, and then ratchet it up and get stronger and stronger. People who are reasonably well-prepared for half marathon that follow that basic plan are always in good stead on every course except for the Austin Marathon, half marathon course. (laughs) (laughs) And then again, so that's sort of half strategy. Again, when we talk about Houston generally, this applies to both the full and the half. I did also want to just reemphasize the points I mentioned at the beginning where the start's crazy in Houston. Several different corrals. They're going to give you a corral time. You need to be there by X time. I think it's 645 for corral A, which is the one I'm in. You want to be there 15 minutes before that. Get settled in, wear extra warm-ups to stay warm if you need to. Right now, knock on wood, the weather's looking good. So you might need to layer up stuff you can discard initially, but you're going to need to get there early and unfortunately just wait. So get there 15 minutes before your corral closes. The other thing is it's in the middle of downtown, as I said, big, tall buildings. I think there's over 100 stories in the Chase Tower. And your GPS likely isn't going to help you at all in the first mile. I recommend, as I've recommended before in this podcast, if you can deal with this, turning your GPS off. If you have a Garmin or really any any uh, any GPS-based watch, typically you can turn the GPS off, 
you, in the settings, and then just split your miles every mile marker. Look for those, split them when you see them, and you'll know exactly where you are with each mile as it is on the course versus trying to worry too much about what your GPS reading is giving you because it will be off for that initial mile at least. Now, if you can't handle that, keep the GPS on, but still split your miles, and then just don't worry about looking at the GPS because it won't be useful until later in the race. That applies to both the full and the half. The other thing I want to mention about Houston, and this especially applies in the half because the streets are better in the latter half of the marathon, those initial miles, I would say one, two, about six in the marathon and a half, where they're the same, are just okay in terms of roads and footing. There's some asphalt sections in there. Uh, when you're on Washington, going through the Heights on Wall Inwood, some of those roads are a little bit dicey now. They're nice and wide, so you have plenty of room to spread out. You won't necessarily have trouble, I think, fighting the crowds after the first mile. But you just want to watch your footing for potholes, for little ridges in the road, stuff like that. Unfortunately, this course and those initial miles are just a little bit bumpy. You know, there's no deep potholes or anything you're going to break an ankle in. But, you know, I've seen people trip on this course. So just be really careful with your footing in those initial miles, especially when you're together with the marathoners. Those are my general course tips that apply to both races. Now, let's talk marathon, Steve, for Houston Marathon. 26.2, also flat. You've got some undulation between around 12 and 13 when you go over the West Park kind of tollway overpass. And then you've got those those underpasses at the end, like we talked about, a couple dips on Allen Parkway as you come in the final three miles. That will be more annoying than anything. But pretty much a flat the flat course, similar to Chicago. As you said, those undulations, you should embrace them because they're only going to mix it up for your muscles. But what's your typical strategy for Houston? Um, I, I love Houston as a negative split race because, um, you know, in the past we've had to deal with significantly challenging weather scenarios. <laughs> um, but knock on wood, <laughs> it's uh, looking pretty good right now. So um, I, I suggest um, a negative split because, but not in a super aggressive one, more along the lines of allowing yourself maybe to give up 20 seconds a mile through the first three miles just because of the chaos. There are a lot of bodies that run this race, and with the half and the full starting at the same time, there's a lot of the half is a really big race, Chris. There's a lot of people running the half. And so the marathoners need to realize that they're going to be in a, a, a world-class, huge marathon event starting line ex experience. And people need to just chill out and give themselves that first two to three miles to find a little room to roam and get a little bit of a rhythm. So I would say maybe at least 10 seconds slow per mile based on your goal time that you're trying to run, but probably more likely somewhere in the vicinity of about 20 seconds per mile. You give up a mile. Let's say you give up a minute in the first 5K. Um, the ease of running, staying controlled, trying to make sure that you that you get uh, take carrying a handheld water bottle early on yourself is very important. One that you can toss off at a point so you don't have to hit aid stations right off the bat. I mean, this race is, a, in my opinion, a quintessential uh, negative split race. Not the incredible aggressive negative split that I might ask somebody to do at some other races, but this is a really solid negative split course, in my opinion. And that means... 
but it won't look like a huge aggressive one. You know, I would suggest if someone were trying to average seven minute per mile pace for this race, that they run 720s for the first three, maybe even four miles, get themselves some room to roam, then lock into that seven minute per mile pace, probably all the way to the 18 or 20 mile marker. And then from that point, then it's go fishing and try to pick up all the slack that you could pick up along the way. Some of the challenges on this course, as I've noticed, is in that section of running from 20, 21, 22 through Memorial Park, it can get, it is the, it is so quiet through there. And if you don't have bodies around you, it can be pretty challenging to go fishing that way. Um, so that's why I might suggest somebody maybe moving a little bit earlier around 18, but generally it's a go early. I mean, go, negative split early, run even place paces in my suggestion, usually till about 18 or 20. And then, and then you only have a minute to make up at that point from based on the goal time that you're trying to run or a minute and a half, depending on what happens. And so there's a real good chance for you if you're having a good day and the weather stays well, that you can get after it and go get it. What do you think? I'm, what are you telling I'm, your athletes? I'm generally with you on that. For many of my athletes, I even recommend a slower start, mm -hmm. starting as much as 45 seconds per mile slow. Yeah, I would say that with an athlete that's that's not trying to run, that has a little more range in what they're trying right. to run. Yeah, so... Right. And so starting there, about 45 seconds slow, working down to pace over the first four to five miles, locking into it by that four or five mile point, holding that until, for me, I'm telling people 21, get through Memorial Park. That makes sense. And mm -hmm. then close it out the last 5.1. You have a nice little downhill, kind of gentle, very subtle downhill starting at 21 and then... Between 22 and 23, you get in even more aggressive downhill. So it's kind of a nice point to kick it into a new gear. And so that's the place where I'm telling people to start really going fishing and going for it. Get and that's it. about the point where the crowds get back into it and you get right. some real... This race is pretty good from a spectator perspective. It's just Memorial Park is crickets. Yep. You know? Exactly. So. so anyway, so that's what I'm recommending and then close it out and then just make sure that inevitably on Allen Parkway, as you join back with the half i mean a lot of people depending on the pace they're running will will, will still see some half marathoners finishing and mm -hmm. so you get a lot of crowds between 24 and 26 because you've got both the half and the full finishing so that section from 24 to the finish is a lot of energy a lot of local clubs and other groups set up tents and people are having parties and drinking beer and having a good time so you can use that last two miles especially to really go for it even through those undulations that we mentioned, but that's where I'm telling people to kind of kick it in and kick it in hard. I mean, a couple notes on Houston. One thing I've, and I've, I've not, I've only raced Houston one other time, but or sorry, two other times, but, but I've run that course so many times <laughs> having lived there for 10 years. I've, yep. I've pretty much every year I've been in Houston and, and many years where I was just living here and going back to cheer people on. I've run this course so many times and that last six miles for whatever reason, there's usually a headwind yeah. in Houston. And I don't know what it is. It's just, I guess, time of year. And usually the wind's coming out of the south, east, uh, sorry, southwest. But um, but you usually have some headwind coming down the stretch. And especially enter into downtown when the winds are kind of swirling. So I would just that's one thing to keep in mind. You might be fighting a little wind. And... You know, depending on where you are in the crowds, drafting works if you're a runner. So try to settle in with a group if you can or just get behind people and go pick people off. 
But that's just one mental note to make is that sometimes you have some headwinds in the in the final 10K of this race. Which means, Chris, from a, from a really logistical standpoint, if, if you're running into something and you begin to notice that wind, the first thing you want to do is turn around, look over your shoulder, and see if there's a decent-sized pack behind you or a few people behind you. Slow off and run with them. That yeah. that loss of 10 to 15 seconds to get with that group will be more than made up for that final four to five miles. Um, you'll probably lose 15 seconds and gain another, and, and not lose another 60 seconds because you yeah. did that. So don't look forward and try to go chase a, fa- a pack down because as soon as you catch them, you're going to need to go around them and leave them. <laughs> it's better to get behind a group, get into a rhythm, make sure they're at about the pace you're trying to run, and then roll through. So. Yeah. So that's one note on the finish, but otherwise, as you said, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. It's three second, three sections, you know, and depending on how aggressive you want to be, you start at, you know, marathon goal pace plus X, anywhere from 20 to 45 seconds, we're saying, work down over the first three to f- three miles to five miles to your target pace, hold it, and when you're holding it till 2021, 20, clockwork, you know, this is a race where you can turn your brain off and just find a rhythm every mile should look the same almost within five seconds of the last so if you can just relax and dial in and and go to sleep almost in the in the race then you're going to be you're going to be ready to roll at the end yeah just don't do that before in the first seven miles because (laughs) once that half marathon group bails off if you got into that mindset and all of a sudden you're by yourself, it can be challenging. And um, I do think that all marathons are great when you try to get a crew to run with around you. It's a challenge, people who appropriately pace, Chris, because they are usually, like you said, 30 seconds, 20, 30 seconds per mile slower, maybe even 45 in some cases. And so they're kind of running through people. But um, keep that in mind that, that especially late in the race, you know, mile 16, 17, 18, if you find folks that find in a similar rhythm – don't be afraid to, you know, introduce yourself in whatever way or shape, shape or form you can and see if you can't get a little crew rolling with you. Yeah. All, he's, Texas is a really yeah, friendly no, state. Good. Yeah, I, pa- I, I paced a guy running the last 20 miles with him to a Boston qualifier. This would have been, gosh, probably 2005 or six. And we, coming down that last three miles, we, we got a little group of people that were all trying to go the same pace and there were probably five of us six of us maybe or i was leading the charge Mm -hmm. and everybody was strung out behind me with into a headwind single file and i have a picture of that that he sent me um for helping him of that i still have on the shelf today of just me like leading a, a group of people and we all met each other and most most everybody hung on till the end which was cool anyway so there's that opportunity so definitely look for it so that's pretty much Houston. I mean, we're going to we're going to give some overarching points at the end of all three where we kind of remind you a few other things to think about across any of these races, but but that's Houston. Pretty simple. Don't make it more complicated than Absolutely. it is. Absolutely. This one's pretty straightforward. And if you have specific questions on the race, feel free to reach out on email chris at roguerunning.com. Now, let's go to a local Austin favorite the following weekend in here in Austin, 3M Half Marathon, a famous, the most famous half marathon in this city because it's fast. Drops 350 feet <laughs> downhill from north to south. Everybody runs this one for a PR, Steve, especially locally. 
but you know i would give this race to anybody as a recommended race to come in town for what's your strategy for the three and a half you know chris it's a little bit different than what i would suggest for most half marathons because i just think as i said earlier about the houston half it's the race is such a forgiving race you can usually be a little more aggressive early but this course drops 300 feet um basically in about a six and a half about a 10k six six and a half mile section that most people if they haven't done a lot of downhill work are just not going to be prepared for and so i suggest that people run a much more conservative approach to the first three to four miles because they can take advantages of advantage of the gifts that this course gives you know from mile six through nine and then again from mile ten and a half to the to the finish line so you know based on pace per mile since i used the seven minute analogy before just using a person that would run an average of seven minute per mile pace i would suggest maybe for the first three miles that they run 30 seconds slower per mile um and somebody might say in a half in a marathon i understand doing that in a marathon i don't understand doing it in a half well just go onto their website, click on the elevation chart, and look at that elevation and how it drops. You're going to be able to make up for that 30 second per mile or a minute that you minute and a half that you might get behind, and be able to slay it at the end. So I would say 7:30 per mile pace through the first three to four miles, and then lock and load on your seven minute per mile pace. Now, at the nine mile marker, Chris, there's an uphill. What do you think? They're going to lose. 10 to 20 seconds. Yeah, they're going to lose mile not not to too ten. much. So you can kind of just get up and over that. And then, man, at mile 10 and a half to the finish line, it's just really downhill and fast. And you can completely destroy your competition, the people around you, and really accelerate to the finish line and, and run an amazing race here. But I worry that folks that decide to do that from the very beginning, I've just seen so many wobbly-legged, wobbly-legged folks coming down Duval who just cannot make the turn and get their legs to turn over late in the race because they, they left it all out there way too early. I had I had a personal experience with that one. <laughs> Dead legs. This this hasn't happened to me in a race before or since, but when I got my PR at this race several years ago, or I guess three years ago it would have been, I was running with Gray and Nora. We went out together. We had a tailwind that day. The weather was like 45. So perfect like that 10 day. 10-mile-an-hour tailwind. And I knew it was going to be a fast day, so we got out even more aggressively than we had thought just because of the tailwind. And got to that top of the hill at mile 10, 45th on the bar. Nora and Gray started to pull away from me. And at the time, I don't remember feeling that badly, but as I kind of went to respond, there was no answer in my <laughs> legs. And it was like suddenly my legs had become disconnected from my body. There was no neuromuscular signals happening and it was like my legs were along for the ride, but I didn't know what was controlling them any longer. And I distinctly remember looking down at them like, what, what's going on, guys? Are we going to do this or not? Nora and Gray pulled away from me. I managed to salvage it pretty well that day. That's still my fastest half ever because I just used gravity and, and basically did a <laughs> tuck and roll, you know, down the ball at the it's end. It's called uh, the being a veteran yeah. gives you a, a, it the, gives you a lot of benefits. I, I, I sort of held it together well, but I do distinctly remember because of that aggressive start, just totally having dead legs at the end. I, I could have gotten more out of that race personally that day if I had been more conservatively or if I had run more conservatively. So to kind of summarize, start out 20 to 30 seconds slow in the first mile Get down to your target pace over the first 
three to five. Hold that until nine. Know that you're going to give a little bit of time back in that nine to ten mile as you climb up 45th to Lamar, and then close close like a motherfucker at the end. Yeah, I mean, we like to say that this course is. You know, I tell my athletes, depending on their fitness and depending on how they're prepped, it'll be a minute to two minutes faster um, than than most court than than an even flat course. And so, um, you know, some of the mental, some of the things that I'm talking about from a pacing are mean that you're going to be aggressive. The key is just not being too aggressive too early because you'll you won't be able to take advantage of the gifts that this course gives over the final three to five miles. So Now, we do have to note that they have changed the course slightly for those that have done it before. The end is different, and I think most people will like this change. You used to take a right on Martin Luther King Boulevard, take a left on Congress to the finish. You had a little climb on MLK there that was really frustrating at the end. Now it just continues out of campus straight on Sanjak South, to towards Shoal Creek Saloon there. And so basically you've just got a straight shot to the finish with a slight rise at the end, but nothing like what you had on the old version. And you're looking at, at it straight away. Straight and it's, shot and to you've the got finish. the finish line right there. So it should be a slightly faster finish than we've seen from this race in the past. Another thing I want to note from a logistics standpoint, if you're really trying to get every second out of this race, and I always have this, debate with people afterwards because people will jump on the message boards and say hey my Garmin said 13.3 miles whatever it may be and you know obviously you're going to have some variance with GPS's in any race but one thing to note this is kind of a pro tip is that you're going to have cones on this course the cones have nothing to do with the certified course <laughs> except actually there was some coning at the very end on MLK that was actually a part of the certified course where you had to kind of go around to the second uh, to go basically facing oncoming traffic to finish. But every other, and now that's gone, so every, every cone on this course is for traffic and safety purposes only. <laughs> it does not manage the certified course. So if you're running within the curbs on a street that is associated with this course, then you're within the certified course, basically. And, and basically, what I'm telling you is you can cut the cones and still be within the certified course. And so if you're going to run the tangents on this course, you actually have to cut the cones. And that is legal because that's the way the certification is drawn up. The cones are just there for your safety or in some cases to keep cars off the course when they're allowed on the course at certain points. So if you need to cut cones, cut cone, cut the cones in order to run the tangents. And if you do that, then you'll get 13 point. I've run 13.1 on this on this course on my GPS versus two or three, which could make 30 seconds, 40 seconds, or even a minute and 20 seconds difference for some people. Absolutely. So that's a pro tip on this is ignore the cones. Obviously, stay. And on if somebody behind you says they're going to turn you in, tell them to kiss your lily white yeah, ass. Yeah, because if you look it up, difference. if you go if you go to usatf.org, you can actually look up the certified map, and it'll show you exactly where the cones matter and where they don't matter for certification purposes. So you can apply that tip to any course, and I always go, especially if I'm running a new course, and check it out to see what cones are there for traffic safety purposes and what cones are there for course certification purposes. So. Pro tip, check that out on this race as well as any others you might be doing. Okay, let's talk 
Austin, and we're going to give an abbreviated version of this now because we want people to start thinking about Austin. It's a new course this year for those that that are in Austin. Got a completely new marathon or second half of the marathon course. The, the half marathon course is the same as in years past, but they've changed the second half of the marathon course really from miles about 12 to the finish, completely different. Now heading to the east side. And there's been much talk about the changes. You know, some might lead you to believe that this is a faster course when it's really not. I'm not going to dump on it at all because it's always been a challenging course and we own that and embrace it. And, and those in this city should own that and embrace it. But it is a challenging course already. And I think it's been made slightly more challenging with these adjustments in some ways. I think you're going to have perhaps uh, over time a more spectator-friendly race a more fun, runnable race over time. But from a challenge standpoint, it's slightly more challenging than what we've seen in the past on this course. Now, you don't have some of the mind fucks that you had before, like Great Northern Falls Flat, <laughs> which were really frustrating. Yep. You've got a little bit more undulation now, which I think is going to be better for the mind, but maybe physically more challenging. So we're going to go through these quickly and then and then we'll want to invite everybody to our annual Austin Prep and Pump. We do an event in early February, which I'll post a link to on a Friday night. It'll be either the 2nd or 9th. We're still finalizing the date this time around, but we'll make sure everybody knows here in Austin where we'll talk about the course in more depth and also give some more mental things to think about with the course. But I just want to give a clip notes version today so people can start thinking and preparing for it. The Half Marathon as I said, is identical. So if you've heard me talk about this race before, it's identical from a strategy standpoint. But the key thing for both of these races is that you're really, really smart. You have to be smart about this race and run each section of this course with a plan and try to be as precise as possible to these paces I'm going to recommend because if you don't, then this course will eat you up and spit you out, whether the half or the full. So for the half, I'll give a quick overview there. From zero to three and a half, you're going straight uphill out south, out Congress to 71. You're going to start 20 to 30 seconds per mile slower than your target pace. And then work down to maybe five to ten seconds slower per mile as you head south. Then you're going to take a right, get on the 71 service road, and then come back down towards the river again you're going to lose all the elevation that you gained going going up congress 271 so from three and a half to mile six you're going to find yourself on the downhills of south first where you're going to have to be really careful not to go too fast you should still be about five to ten seconds faster per mile than your target pace in that section but you want to make not make the mistake of going too fast. You've got some pretty good downhills there in that section of this course, and you just want to be smooth and in control. Let the gravity pull you and kind of carry you down those hills, but don't get too aggressive or too over your ski tips, as I like to say, because you will wipe out later if you're not careful. From 6 to 10, you find yourself on Cesar Chavez, out to Lake Austin, towards Hula Hut. That's where you can get on pace. Try to dial into your rhythm from 6 to 10. And then 10 to 13.1, you've got the rollers on infield all the way back into downtown and then a few turns 
to Congress and then you're done. From 10 to 13.1, it's 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 difficult. You've got some rollers. You've got a big climb on infield and 15th coming back into downtown. But on all of those uphills and downhills, you can be aggressive. Press the downhills. Press the uphills. Mm-hmm. You know, ease off a little bit, but, but still kind of press the uphills. You want to, you know, just like any half marathon at the end, close it out. Especially in this type of race, I think going fishing is really beneficial because a lot of people will be making who made mistakes early will be coming back to you. So look for those shirts ahead of you. Be aggressive in those final 3.1, whether it's on the ups or the downs. I think if you've done your job early, you can finish 5 to 10 seconds faster per mile over the final 3.1 in this half marathon. But only if you were smart in those first six. You know, being conservative up Congress and fast but conservative down south first in the first half of the race. Four sections, fairly straightforward. And as James said in our prep and pump last year, make the decision <laughs> to execute the plan. And he talked about being as calm as a Tibetan monk <laughs> in the opening <laughs> miles. Yes. But that's kind of the way you have to treat this. Like be calm, be in control, be dialed in those first six. Find your rhythm six to ten and then close it out going fishing in the final 3.1 on infield. You know, Chris, there are a lot of challenges to this course, um, you know, and, you know, even you and I were really skeptical at first when they announced this race course, and um, perhaps we were a bit unfair to the marathon in terms of challenging their initial statements of trying to make this course easier. It's not easier, but it's still a really, really cool marathon course, I think. And I think in the long run, we may actually begin to look at this race as a great race because Chris, the sections that they have when you get east of I-35, we run these roads all the time. They're awesome roads. Running down Chacon, running down Tillery, running in on Cesar Chavez. We don't ever get to run in on Cesar Chavez because we got to run down second because there's too much traffic. But to be running west on Cesar Chavez through all that section, there's going to be some really good sections. And I hopefully... I think Austin's going to get excited. I think that people on the east side are going to get community, going to get excited about the community, excited about having a race out there. And I think in a year to two years, three years, this could turn out to be a really genius move for them in terms of moving to the east side. But it does mean that athletes that are going to need the kind of advice that we give them and the kind of training that rogues provide from a training perspective in order to be appropriately prepared for it and to know how to manage it. The last thing anybody's going to be able to do on this course, though, is to expect to run the last mile super fast the last mile is really tough and it will be something that probably will give the marathon a little bit of a of a of a challenge in terms of a pr thing but i do think that if you're prepared for that last little mile you can still do a lot of wonderful things on this course and i'm excited to see how it plays out and how our athletes perform on it You've segued to the marathon, so I will oh, too. Oh, I'm sorry. I will too. Wow, I just jumped. But yeah, yeah. so there's some challenging sections. I'm estimating that this new course is about 90 seconds to two minutes slower yeah, it seems about than right. the other course. The other course, I would tell people, hey, I still think you can, you know, PR, I still think you can have your best day in Austin if you really, really run it smart in a smart way. This course... Still challenging, one that you should come and do because it's going to be fun and you're going to be a badass for doing it. But it's not one where you can necessarily expect a PR unless you've got a buffer, you know, to get yep. that PR. 
And so I'm estimating for those that have run Austin before that this is a minute and a half to two minutes slower. Now, most of that time you're going to lose versus the old course is actually in the middle. Yeah. From miles 10 to about 18 and a half. And I'll get there in a second, but that's the section where, and I'm going to kind of use the analogy of, you know, or to kind of summarize the overall strategy here is you got to get out smart and you got to kind of play rope a dope in the middle. It's like a boxer. You know, like I think about, you know, I watched Floyd, May- Floyd Mayweather fight Conor McGregor <laughs> in whenever that was in August. And, you know, he, his basic strategy was not to punch the first yep. three rounds, was just to dodge and block and make Connor do the work. And Connor landed some punches in those first opening rounds, but, you know, but he didn't have a knockout punch. And, and Mayweather was just kind of taking some hits, but, de- but using defense and moving around, making Connor work to wear himself out. And ultimately, he punched himself out and then. You know, in round seven to ten, Mayweather started to come on, and then I think it was ten rounds that that thing went TKO. But you know, that's kind of how you have to be with this course. Think about it like you're a prize fighter playing rope a dope with the opponent, and you just kind of have to roll with the punches from ten to eighteen and a half, not waste energy and not take big hits, because if you do, you might as well just sign your death certificate now. Because you're going to have to close this thing out, 19 to 26, or really 25 and a half. Right, <laughs> 19 exactly. to 25 and a half is going to have to be where prime time, where yep. you go for it, where you get significant time back. That's and this course gives a lot of wonderful gifts opportunities in that section. That, yeah. yes. So you're going to have to close this out. And if you're somebody who's in Austin or who's coming to Austin for this race, I want you to prepare yourself in the next month and a half by doing some fast finish long runs because yes. that's what you're going to need for this race. So let me go kind of back up and kind of walk through it all. I break this course into six sections. I'm going to run through those quickly. The first zero to three and a half, as I mentioned, you're with the half marathoners going up Congress. You gain about 70 feet per mile in the first three miles of this race. It's actually the most gain per mile with the exception of that last hill, which we'll cover, <laughs> um, of any other part of the course. So it's deceptively challenging in those opening miles, but it's good because it forces you to slow down if you're smart. So you're going to start 45 seconds to a minute slower in the first mile than your target pace in that opening section and then work down to about 15 to 20 seconds slower per mile for mile three. Then as you turn right with the marathoners, come down south first, you're going to do the same, just like them. Stay in control, but let gravity do the work without getting too in over your ski tips. You should be MGP minus 5 to 10 seconds from 3.5 to 6 as you approach downtown again. Then from 6 to 10, just like the half marathoners, they'll be on half marathon pace. You should be on marathon pace. That's your first section to really try to dial into a rhythm and really the best part of this race for that. From downtown out to Hula, 6 to 10, find your rhythm. Then we get to that middle section I was talking about from 10 to 8.5, sorry. And you've just got nonstop kind of ups and downs. There's pretty much rollers that whole section. You've got several on infield. Yes, several um, tough ones on infield. So you've got the initial ones on infield right after you turn on to infield. Then you've got the roller going under Mopac. And then the, and then the, the little the monster going up. Going into downtown. You've yep. got three significant rolling sections with some other little ones in there on infield. 
Then you turn on to Guadalupe. And you climb Gu- Guadalupe is a false flat all the way to 45th. Yep. Once you get to 45th, you've got more climbing up to Red River. You come down a little bit. You get to 41st. You've got to climb from 41st up to Duval. You do Duval, Sanjak, Dean Keaton. There's a nasty little double climb on Dean Keaton as you approach 35 and go under 35 just before 18 and a half. And so this that whole section from 10 to 18 and a half, you're kind of dealing with constant ups and downs. And basically there you've got to, as I said, roll with the punches and, you know, don't press the uphills, take the downhills, you know, relaxed and in control. And for that whole section from 10 to 18, I'm saying or believing that you should be 10 to 20 seconds slow every mile versus your target marathon pace. Yes. And those are going to vary. You know, some miles will be a little bit different than others. It's going to be quite a range. No two miles in there will be the same. But you need to roll with the punches, conserve energy, let people pass you and do dumb things on all those climbs in that section, knowing that you'll get them at the end. And then... And then, it, and then it's time to roll. Yep. I mean, from 18 to 21, you have net downhill. From 21 to 25 and a half, it's basically flat. And I'm, I'm breaking those two sections into two distinct sections. From 18 and a half to 21, I think, you know, it's time to, to, to press a little bit on the downhills, be, a little, be more aggressive than you were on the early downhills on South First. You know, 10 to 20 seconds fast till 21 faster than marathon pace once you hit 21 you should hold that and then hopefully progress even more from there kind of winding it up gradually from 21 to the finish it's pretty much pancake flat from 21 to 25 and a half you've got a little climb very tiny on a waller up to six Six. from yeah from basically fourth street there Mm -hmm. tiny little bump there the near sixth into downtown, Red River is flat up to 11th. And then you've got that 11th Street climb, and I don't know what to tell you except that you've got to be ready to survive it. You gain 70 feet in half a mile. Check your nuts. <laughs> so basically right before the finish until yep. point one. And then at point one to the finish, you have downhill as you wrap around to, you know, in front of the Capitol. But you have half a mile of 70 feet of climbing, and there's no sh- way to sugarcoat it except you're going to be in for the fight of your life there and knowing the finish is right there you're just going to have to find a way to dig deep mentally just get as much as you can out of that hill knowing you're going to give some time back there but it doesn't matter just keep put, keep putting one foot in front of the other grind it out knowing that the finish is close that's all you can do yep so basically close like a motherfucker those last <laughs> 10k and then survive that last hill and that's it you know that's the race plan um, I would highly recommend that you train on this course, especially that last half. It's, you know, from if you're on a early Saturday, you know, Guadalupe, 45th, all those roads are fairly runnable, especially get once you get to the east side. Cesar Chavez is a little dicey coming in. You can get on second. Just get on second. It's pretty much the same yep. profile. There is a little bit already on second in that course, but I would highly recommend if you live in town to check it out. And definitely check out that 11th Street climb because you're going to want to visualize being a badass up that climb. You're going to give some time back. But you're also, if you prepare yourself, going to be passing people that will be literally walking 
people were walking on Sanjak at the end, and, and <laughs> this is like Sanjak times two. Yep. So people are going to be walking, and if you're prepared mentally to go get bodies at that point. Slapping asses. And just keep putting one foot in front of the other and keep moving, you'll get through it. It's going to be tough, but you need to mentally prepare, and I think running that hill a couple of times before, even if you just go do that climb, is going to be important. So I highly recommend you guys check this out before race day. And as I mentioned, we'll give you the full rundown as well as mental tips at our prep and pump coming up in February, which we'll make sure you know about. As we close things out, a couple things I just want to remind people of in general marathon race planning. And we actually have an episode on this, episode five, where we talk about marathon race planning in general, where we talk about nutrition and hydration and all the stuff you should be thinking about besides race strategy and race pace. Go check out that episode, but there's just a couple of reminders I want to lay out for all these races coming up. One is nutrition. Make sure you have your nutrition plan dialed in based on whatever you've been practicing in your long runs and don't deviate from it. Inevitably, as we said on our famous last words episode, <laughs> inevitably people will skip a gel or skip a water stop or drop a goo or whatever it may be. Just Follow your nutrition plan. Write it down based on what you've been working on and just follow it to a T. Don't deviate because you have to control what you can control on race day and that's one of the things you can control. The second thing is don't neglect your mental preparation. Steve and I have talked about it many times, your mantras. Think about your purpose for the day. Think about how that translates into mantras you can use when the going gets tough and be ready with one, two, or three of those one word, two word, three word mantras to go to work when the going gets tough and go back and listen to the problem solving motherfucker episode as well we already talked about it a little bit in this episode but it's really important to do that problem solving um and have yourself in a position of going into battle and being a warrior we did all of that in an hour and 15 minutes steve not bad yeah if and we have, fumbled the ball, but nobody <laughs> knew. <laughs> if you have other, the power of editing. Yes. If you have other <laughs> questions, do send those along. Chris at roguerunning.com or Steve Sisson at roguerunning.com. We will happily answer them. If you're in Austin, come check out our prep and pump in February. Like I said, I'll link to the specific date and we'll mention it once we have that locked in. It'll be the Friday, the 2nd or the 9th. And go get it done. Rogues in Houston, Rogues at 3M, Rogues. And Austin. Austin and everybody listening, good luck on these races. We'll I'll be racing with you in Houston, and we'll be cheering on, certainly from the sidelines and from the data lines on the tracking screens here. So there you go. That's today's episode. Hope you enjoyed it. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk See to you soon. See you, people.